1872, the United States Supreme Court denied Myra Bradwell the right to practice law specifically because she was a woman. Ms. Bradwell apprenticed, passed the Illinois bar exam, and had support from legal professionals, but the decision to deny her the right to practice law rested on the idea that women were, quote, never contemplated, unquote, to be members of the bar. Things have changed since then, but not without the sacrifice and fortitude of female lawyers. In our first two seasons, we met with a dozen or so female jurists who talked about their backgrounds and paths to get on the bench. This season, we'll expand on those stories and interview lawyers throughout the state of Florida who are trailblazers in their practice areas and role models for male and female attorneys everywhere. In previous episodes, we've discussed the history of women in the legal profession and in the judiciary, but how about women in law schools? In our last episode, I spoke with Dean O'Hara O'Connor from the Florida State University College of Law about the role of female professors and in legal academia. Although the law student population nationwide and in Florida is about 50-50 male to female, the history of allowing people of color and women into law schools in Florida is not a pretty one. Stetson Law School admitted women from the time it was founded in 1900, but it was a private school and inaccessible to many Floridians. The first woman to apply to the public law school at the University of Florida was Stella Beidel Fisher in 1924. She was denied admission, but allowed to attend classes as a visitor. She ultimately was allowed to sit for the Florida bar exam without obtaining the law degree, and she passed. The next year, in 1925, the legislature enacted a law permitting women into the University of Florida professional schools if they met certain criteria above the regular admissions requirements. A woman had to be 21 years old. She had to have received 60 hours of academic college from a reputable educational institution, and she must be unable to obtain the class that she wishes to take at any other state college or university. It was not until 1933 that the first woman was approved for admission into the University of Florida College of Law. Clara Floyd Gehan described her first day at the law school as stressful and remembered that male students lined up outside the law education building and formed two lines that she had to go between to enter the building. Ms. Gehan graduated with honors and was number one in her law school class, but even after this, women were discouraged from applying to the law school. Between 1933 and 1942, only eight women graduated from the University of Florida College of Law. My next guest also broke the glass ceiling at the University of Florida by becoming its first full-time female dean of the law school. Today's guest is the current dean of University of Florida, Levin College of Law, Dean Laura Ann Rosenberry. Dean Rosenberry graduated from Harvard Ratcliffe College and received her JD from Harvard Law School. She clerked for a federal district judge and the U.S. Court of Appeals Second Circuit before she began her teaching career at Vanderbilt, George Mason University, Georgetown, and Northwestern Law Schools. She became the first female dean of UF Law School in 2015. Welcome, Dean Rosenberry, and thank you for joining us on Never Contemplated. Well, thank you so much for having me, Judge. Before we get started, I want to fully disclose to our listeners that I am a proud graduate of the University of Florida College of Law, and it is a real honor for me to have you here today, and I want to welcome you again. Where are you today? <laughs> I'm, at, I'm in Gainesville at the Levin College of Law. 
Okay. So I'm just going to start at the beginning. Dean Rosenberry, you've been living in Florida since you became the dean uh, and moved to Gainesville in 2015, but you're not from Florida. Where are you from? <laughs> I, I grew up in northern Indiana. Um, my extended family had a large farm, um, corn and soybeans, and we also had dairy cattle. And my immediate family was on and off the farm in northern Indiana. Did you grow up on the farm, like around the farm? Yes, but, but you know, um, I went to school in what my cousins would call, you know, the city because it had 60,000 people in it, whereas our farm was in a town of 600. So we were on and off the farm. <laughs> well, did you have work experience on the farm or... Absolutely. So I grew up gardening. It's still one of my passions. And then taking care of the chickens, taking care of the dairy cattle. Um, one of my first um, paid jobs was drawing the markings on the Holstein cattle. I did that when I was 12 and 13. Do you have any gardening tips for, for do you still garden today? Florida has radically changed my gardening game because you know, we we don't have the hard frost that I'm used to. In fact, in the seven and a half years I've lived here, we've only had one hard frost. So it's been really interesting to change up my gardening. I don't know if I have any advice for the true Floridians, but it's a total joy to be able to grow, you know, arugula and other greens during the winter months um, nonstop. Well, let's go back to Indiana. Um, so you went to high school, I'm assuming, in the big city. <laughs> what kind of student were you? And um, did you know you wanted to be in a, uh, go to law school and be an attorney? So law school was never in my sights. Um, I grew up in a religious faith, the Church of the Brethren, that did not believe in resorting to the courts. So I didn't know any lawyers. Um, I didn't think of lawyers as as um you know, crucial to society the way I do now. Um, you know, I was um, a quiet student. I like to read, um, I'm a little shy, um, but very diligent um, and and really interested in current events as well as history. Um, and so you, I can see the seeds of my interest in law, but I wasn't thinking about law at that time. What were you thinking about? <laughs> um. That's a great question. Um, <laughs> well, you ended up going to Harvard, Radcliffe, and then Harvard. So how did you end up going from a small town to that? So my dad started working for a fertilizer company in Indiana that had its headquarters in New York City. And so right before my senior year of high school, they transferred my dad to the headquarters in New York. Um, I'm the oldest of four children. I almost stayed back with, with extended family to finish high school in Indiana, but I realized I would really miss my younger siblings. So we all moved um, to a suburb of New York um, in Westchester County, New York. Um, and I went to the public high school there, Rye High School. And the guidance counselor changed my life because I wasn't thinking of applying to Harvard. Um, I was going to apply to Indiana University or maybe Northwestern would be my um, you know, dream school. And uh, Mr. Sweeney, the guidance counselor, said, OK, you can apply to Northwestern. That will be your safety school. Let's now start talking about other options for you. And um, without Mr. Sweeney, who knows what would have happened or without that move, who knows what would have happened. But that's why how I ended up at Harvard. You must have been a good student to get in and for Mr. Sweeney to encourage you to do that. Once you get to Harvard, 
was that, a, I mean, it was probably a culture change from Indiana to New York, but then from Indiana to Harvard was probably right. interesting too. Tell us about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, so going from Indiana to New York, it was, um, you know, I was exposed to just a much more cosmopolitan um, group of students who, you know, who had left the country. I had never left the country who regularly went into New York City. I was overwhelmed by New York City, um, you know, who who went to Broadway, who went to the symphony, you know. So so um, that year that I was at Rye High School really opened my uh, mind and, and, you know, and my horizons were just radically altered. Um, and then once I got to Harvard, um, I realized that even though I was a good student, um, in Indiana, and then also in New York, um, there was a lot that I had just n- never read. Um, and, you know, like I, I loved U.S. history, but I knew nothing about the rest of the world <laughs> and the history of the rest of the world. I had never um, even understood what political theory was or literary theory or sociology. So my first couple years at Harvard, I studied like a dog. Um, I was in the library all the time, just trying to catch up um, and um, and and not be intimidated because it was certainly very intimidating at first. But I made some great friends um, and, you know, obviously um, eventually succeeded. Well, what was your major in undergrad? So it was women's studies. And, and I chose that in part because it was a real, relatively new major at Harvard. I think we, we were the third class who could major in it. And it was really small. And I was feeling you know, pretty overwhelmed by the size um, of, of Harvard and by what I felt like was um, you know, the fact that I felt like I was behind. And so this was you know, an interdisciplinary major. I could take some of history, some of political science, some of literature, you know, and other critical theory in very small settings. Um, you know, so my sophomore tutorial had six people in it. My junior year, I had a one-on-one tutorial. And, and that small size was something I felt like I really needed. Well, were there any classes or professors that you had that kind of steered you toward applying to law school? So when I graduated, I did not think about applying to law school. I did take a women in law class. But once again, I think because of my upbringing, I saw it more as an interesting um, aspect of society as opposed to something that I was passionate about. And um, it wasn't until... I was working after college that I began to understand that law was about so much more than Supreme Court cases, which we had mostly um, read in that women in law class, um, and that lawyers did so much more than simply go to court like, you know, we now see on Law and Order, <laughs> that, you know, instead lawyers were problem solvers. Well, and, what was your job after college? Then? Right. So I was working at the National Office of Planned Parenthood. And I was doing, you know, policy work and and research for them. I wasn't doing anything law related. But what I saw was a lot of the people I worked with had law degrees, even though they weren't doing litigation or going to court. And so that's why I began to understand law as a much broader profession. Well, it sounds like, and I know that 
just from reading your bio and that you have written a lot of articles regarding women's rights and reproductive rights, sexual rights. And I think most people would call you and you would call yourself a feminist. Is that right? Absolutely. So what does it mean to be a feminist today in the legal profession? Well, I think broadly, I view feminism as um, as a way of looking at how gender shapes the world. Um, you know, so some of that is historical, um, but some of it is about social norms um, and, and the way that gender changes our expectations of people. Um, even if we like to think we can be free from gender, gender roles still play a huge role in shaping our preferences. And so, um, you know, I think about feminist legal theory as uh, the tool that looks at how law plays a role in constructing gender. Um, so, you know, I don't view gender as something that's purely biological or natural, but instead I view it as a social construction. Obviously, biology plays a part in that construction, um, but law also plays a part in that construction. And, you know, previously law dictated separate roles for men and women. Um, with the you know, equal protection cases that went before the Supreme Court in the 1970s, the Supreme Court gradually um, said that was a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. So we don't have, you know, explicit restrictions or classifications now based on gender, but we still have gender roles throughout society. And, and, and I'm just fascinated by how gender persists, even as we've said, you know, we, you can't have distinctions on the basis of gender in family law even more, anymore, right? We, with same-sex marriage, you don't even need a man and a woman for marriage, right? So, so what, what does gender mean in our society? How does law, how has it played a role in constructing gender and regulating gender? And how will it continue to do so, even as some people think we're in a post-gender world? Well, I think we could probably have like an hour CLE <laughs> just on, on this discussion, but I want to switch back to getting back to, to you and your experience. So you are working for Planned Parenthood. Yes. And you realize you want to go to law school. Is Harvard the only law school you applied to? Or did you no. apply to ones in New York City? Um, I did apply to Columbia um, and I almost stayed in New York, um, but, you know, I was feeling pretty overwhelmed by New York. You know, you had to remember I was living in Indiana just like, you know, five years before. So I, even though I loved the big city, you know, I, I wasn't sure I wanted to stay. Um, and then when I got into Harvard, obviously, um, that was familiar to me, um, even though the law school was very different than the undergraduate, um, it still felt like um, a home to me. And so I chose to go back to Harvard. Well, I know you were editor of Law Review. You uh, were obviously a good student there. At that time, were you thinking, I want to go into academia? Were you thinking you wanted to go into civil rights law? What were you thinking? So not academia. Um, <laughs> so maybe this is the theme. You know, I didn't think I was going to go to law school. Then I went to law school. When I was in law school, I never imagined that I would be a law professor, let alone a dean. Um, I did think about, you know, maybe um, um, going into civil rights law, particularly, um, you know, working for uh, 
something like the National Women's Rights Center or National Women's Law Center. But I was also just intrigued by law more broadly. Um, and, you know, that's why I decided to apply for federal clerkships and was very uh, fortunate to be selected for two of those. And then I ended up going to a big law firm um, in part because I just was intrigued by the range of cases I was seeing, you know, at the federal district court and the federal appellate court. Well, let's talk about that. Um, you did two very different kinds of clerkships, and yes. um, they're, they're both federal courts, but one is, you know, the district court where a lot of things happen and it's very busy. And then you have the appellate court where they get to think about things and write about things. Both of those clerkships were in New York City. Is that right? Correct. Well, one was in Brooklyn, the district court, and the other, um, the appellate court was in Manhattan. So why don't you tell us the pros and cons of of <laughs> Of, of each clerkship, if right. you can. Well, Judge, you've already sort of highlighted that in the district court, we had things happening every day. <laughs> um, first of all, we just had so many motions that um, in the civil on the civil side that we had to get through. And some took a long time, like motions for summary judgment. Others we could process more quickly. Um, but the judge I clerked for, uh, Carol Bagley Ammon, also, you know, had an active criminal docket. So, um, you know, we we had several criminal trials, but but there were also a lot of um, uh, motions and that sort of thing related to the criminal docket. So, you know, every day it was something new. We were interacting with lawyers who had discovery disputes. Um, I felt like I was, you know, I finally was like, oh, this is law. <laughs> you know, in law school, it, you're, you're sort of removed. And I was in chambers with the judge and my co-clerk. And I'm like, this is what they mean by the practice of law. It was really exciting, overwhelming. Um, my judge was, you know, very supportive, but also demanding in that um, she had a lot of work to do and it was our job to assist her. And, you know, my third day in the clerkship, she had had me look at a motion um, the day before and she wanted me to come in. My co-clerk stayed behind to advise her on, on the oral argument that was going to happen the next day. And, you know, so I tried to give her the overview and then she just started asking me questions and it was more intense than any Socratic questioning I'd had in law school. And I just felt myself on the verge of tears. Um, and she finally stopped and said, you know, the reason I'm asking you these questions is because I rely on you to advise me. Um, of course, I'm going to come up with my own decision, but I need you to be the person who can help me do that. And, and so I need you to be able to answer these questions. I'm not testing your intelligence. I need your help. And I, so I went back to Chambers and I decided my only goal for the clerkship was not to cry in front of the judge. <laughs> but it also helped me understand um, you know, um, the pressures federal judges face, all judges face, but also how what my role as a clerk could be. And it made me ultimately much more confident when I was in legal practice. You're exactly right that the circuit court clerkship, now I, I worked for another amazing judge, but it was a much more academic. You know, we had oral argument um, once a month for a few days. So we were just getting... Um, bench memos ready for that oral argument, and then obviously working on any opinions that were assigned 
um, to Judge Jacobs. And I learned a lot, but it was much slower paced. <laughs> and, you know, and, and we were dealing it's a lot with, of reading and writing, a lot of reading and writing and, you know, dealing only with questions of law as opposed to questions of fact, you know, whereas the district court, um, we were dealing with both. And, and I did learn something very important from Judge Ammon, who, you know, like many district court judges, you know, did not want to be reversed <laughs> by the circuit court. And so she was constantly saying, can we make this an issue of fact as opposed to law? Because we're much less likely to get overruled if it's an issue of fact than law. And, you know, that had never occurred to me um, when I was a law student, but it obviously played a vital part, you know, vital role in my future practice. And then after the clerkship, you you did actually practice law and yeah. uh, at a law firm. What kind of cases did you handle? So I was at Davis Polk in New York City. I did mostly white collar criminal defense. So very different than anything I would have imagined, you know, either going into law school or while I was in law school. Um, but I had some amazing mentors who who did that sort of work, and I found it intriguing. We represented only entities, um, you know, corporations or a utility, and that too was very eye opening because I had a, had a focus on individual clients when I was in law school, and it just didn't occur to me what the nuances would be when you're representing an entity. At what point? When you were practicing, did you think, oh, I want to switch careers and go into academia? So in law school, I had a wonderful mentor, um, Martha Menno. She was my first semester civil procedure professor and just very supportive. I didn't actually do that well in her class, <laughs> but, but you know, she was the type of professor who really um, urged people to go to her office hours. She, she took us to lunch. Um, you know, at the end of my first year of law school, I wasn't sure if, if, it, if law was the right thing for me. I went to Martha and to, to, you know, seek advice. And she's the one who said, you should stay in law school. You should do the law review competition. Second and third year will be much more interesting. You should apply for federal clerkships. And then once I was in New York, she would email me or call me once every six months, three to six months, and just say, how's it going? Have you ever thought about teaching? <laughs> how's it going? Have you ever thought about teaching? And eventually, I took her seriously. At first, I thought she was crazy <laughs> to suggest that I could go into teaching. Um, but, you know, and I... Why did you not think that you could do that or were not interested in that? You know, some of it was insecurity, I think. Um, some of it was I didn't have any academics in my family. Um, so, you know... Um, but you didn't have any lawyers in your family either. <laughs> I know. I know. Right, right. And so, but this is why I'm so thankful that Martha pushed me because maybe I would have come um, to academia on my own eventually, but it would have taken much more time. And so I, you know, try to follow her example when I'm mentoring students to make sure they understand all the options in front of them and that they don't hold themselves back out of insecurity or just a lack of knowledge of, of what's possible. So at some point you leave the law firm and you get a job where? At Washington University in St. Louis. Um, 
and I that was uh, I started in August of 2002. I was a little wary about returning to the Midwest because you know the East Coast had opened up all these new um, possibilities, um, you know, changed my life dramatically, and I was afraid if I went back to the Midwest somehow I would lose that. And it was Martha Menno again. who's <laughs> like, no, you should take this job. She's like, it'll be a great way to merge your law school self and your pre-law school self, your Indiana self. And, and she was right um, once again, um, but very much also assisted me in dealing with you know, some of the classroom dynamics that young professors face. You know, I would just call up Martha, we'd discuss it. Um, and, you know, with humor, she would encourage me to go on. What kind of classes did you start off teaching? So my first class ever was um, I had 105 people in trust in the states. And it's um, a pretty dry class. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I no, no, no uh, I didn't mean to speak badly of any no. of my trust in estate. No, friends. Well, I, I view it as family law for dead people. and and family law was you know was uh my primary interest at that time so um i enjoyed teaching trust and estates but it was hard for my first class to be so large um and that's where martha's advice was very helpful i also had some great mentors at wash u and then the next semester i was able to teach children in the law which was more in the core of my interest and then feminist legal theory, um, a seminar, which, um, you know, I loved doing and, um, you know, have taught feminist legal theory now, I think, almost 15 times. So you start teaching in 2002. Were there were a lot of female professors teaching at your law school? So at WashU, we were 50-50 male-female in terms of the tenure-track faculty, but that was very intentional on WashU's part. They had worked for the previous 10 years to make that happen. Um, most other law schools still had you know, a majority male tenure-track faculty. It was maybe getting closer to 60-40, um, but WashU was one of the first schools that uh, um, achieved 50-50. And that was part of the reason I was attracted to go there. Um, I, I knew I would have the support of, of other female faculty and, and that I wouldn't be pigeonholed as, as, just, as just a female faculty member. There were so many of us that we were just faculty members. You end up getting tenure there yes. at Washington, and then you end up joining the administration there. How did that happen? You know, I once again, I wasn't thinking about becoming a vice dean. It didn't occur to me. I got tenure um, and, and that was my goal. And then, um, you know, in terms of what was next, I wasn't sure. Um, but I started playing a more active role on some key committees at the law school, particularly our hiring committee that focused on hiring new professors. And um the next thing I knew, the dean was asking me to be the vice dean. Um, of course, I called Martha Meadow. 
to get her advice on um, what I should do. Um, and, you know, once again, she's like, why are you, why are you even questioning this? Of course you should do it. And, and I had a wonderful two years working with um, Dean Kent Severud, who was the Dean at WashU at the time. He's now the chancellor of Syracuse University. Um, but I learned so much from him. And what I realized is even though I loved teaching and I loved scholarship, there were some problem-solving skills that I had really developed in practice that I had not been using at all in teaching until I became the vice dean. You know, so so it was a great way to merge, um, you know, maybe more of my strengths by, you know, I continued to teach, I continued to write, but then I also got to do you know, um, problem solving in, in various ways. Speaking of problem solving, you decide to put your name in the ring for the dean of UF Law School in, I guess, in 2015. At that point, uh, the law school had had an unsuccessful round of interviews. They they had a hard time selecting someone. So this was the second round um, of, of looking for the dean. Tell us how you you know, decided to apply and, and what that process, the hiring process was for where you are today. Well, you, you might be detecting a theme here. Um, <laughs> Let me guess, you didn't think search, you were going to do it. <laughs> the search committee reached out to me. Um, otherwise, I would not have considered it. Um, and, the, and they were pretty uh, persistent in reaching out to me and asking me to apply. Um, it was in part because Kent Severud, my dean, had recommended me. He's a wonderful mentor and sponsor. But the reason I wasn't taking it seriously and hadn't even contemplated it is because I had no ties to Florida. And I figured um, the dean of the flagship law school in Florida should have ties to Florida. That was, that was just my assumption. But the search firm and, and the chair of the committee um, were very good at explaining why they were casting a wide net, why they thought I had the skill set that, you know, they were looking for. And also that there were a lot of opportunities at UF that they thought a new dean could take advantage of. So I finally put my hat in the ring. But once again, I thought it was like practice and figured, okay, we'll see how this goes. Once again, Martha Menno said, why wouldn't you do this? Um, you know, just go and see whether you like. And you people. came down and had you ever been to Florida before or to Gainesville? Never to Gainesville. So I came down first in March of 2015 and I just went to the Gainesville Hilton and they, you know, did what they call airport interviews, but I guess they interviewed 12 people like an hour at a time. And we weren't, it was supposed to be, you know, we were supposed to be confidential to one another. So I wasn't allowed to leave <laughs> the hotel room until my interview. And then I flew out. So I didn't really see games. So, so just for our listeners, I can, I can see the Dean and she's acting like she's hiding <laughs> with her body language, but go ahead. <laughs> Right. So so that was my first time to Gainesville. And then um, they selected four finalists and I was one of those four. So I came back to Gainesville for a fuller visit in uh, April of 2015. And did you think you had a chance? Um, no, in part because I was the only woman in the pool. So I figured I was 
there to achieve some, you know, gender diversity. Um, the, the previous search didn't have any female finalists. So I'm sure there was pressure um, to find a female finalist. And, and I was it. So I was like, okay, I know what role I'm playing. It probably took the pressure off a little bit. Um, and, and, um, and I went and, and, you know, came back to Gainesville, did, you know, very intense two days worth of interviewing. Um, and it was during that intensive process that I began to think, wait, I could do this job and they're treating me like a serious candidate. And, and so I became more and more. Interested. Obviously, we're, ha we're happy that you took the job. You've been there for about seven years. I know when you started, I read that you, your goals for UF Law School was to improve scholarship, teaching and diversity. And I want to tackle each of these. So let's start with scholarship. Uh, when you what was the state of affairs when you when you became dean, I know that the previous dean, Dean Robert Jerry, was he was also interested in female and minority people of color enrolling, but I don't know academically how we were in 2015. Right, right. Well, you know, UF Law has always had a strong faculty, but by 2015, the law school had become somewhat sleepy. Um, Professors weren't engaging with other colleagues across the nation um, in the way that you would see other top law schools engaging or even FSU's professors engaging. And so one of my first priorities was to, you know, um, support faculty scholarship in new ways, um, reinvigorate a faculty workshop series where we would have professors from all over the country come in um, and present their work and get to meet our faculty and likewise provide funding for our faculty to go out and give talks. Um, FSU had been doing this for quite a while. I, did, I had, in fact, gone to FSU when I was at WashU to give one of these talks. Um, so um, in some ways, it was just, um, and, you know, getting UF out there in terms of, of scholarship. Um, you know, likewise, with respect to teaching, you know, the world was, is rapidly evolving, but, but our curriculum had stayed sort of stable. And, and you know, working with faculty to think about, um, you know, additional courses we could offer our students so they're better prepared for practice, thinking about having new clinical opportunities so they can really um, engage in skills while at law school. And I'm proud to say we ended up starting three new clinics, um, an immigration clinic, a veterans clinic, and just this past year, a low-income taxpayer clinic. So those were the you know, broad strokes with respect to scholarship and teaching. Um, in terms of diversity, you're right. Every law school dean in the country <laughs> wants to increase diversity of student of student body, of, of, of faculty and staff as well. And Dean Jerry had done a great job. Um, the faculty uh, was relatively diverse, more diverse than I was used to at WashU, at least with respect to racial diversity. Um, but our student body wasn't as diverse as the state of Florida. And as the flagship law school, we want to have our law school, you know, mirror the population um, 
as much as possible. And so just doing a lot more outreach to applicants in general, all applicants, but also, you know, targeted outreach to um, students of color, particularly um, we had a very low Hispanic population and, and given um, the demographics in Florida, that just seemed odd. So reaching out and asking more people to apply led to more diversity in the class. I want to go back to the scholarship part and the rankings because numbers, you know, everyone looks at the numbers. I know that we are now, I think, in the top 25 UF law school. Is, Is that right? That's right. That's right. We've been in the top 25 for three years. We're currently ranked 21. We're 21. But in 2015, when you came, we we were not in the top 25. No, no. We were struggling to stay in the top 50 at that point. Um, we were 48. And just a few years before, FSU had a higher ranking than UF. And that, of course, um, was very concerning um, to all the Gators out there. <laughs> so, you know, one of my goals um, was to, you know, because everyone told me UF was supposed to be the best law school it is, in the state it of is. Florida. <laughs> <laughs> right? but, but from an outsider's perspective, which I had in 2015, when I looked at the data, FSU was arguably better. Then UF, like if we looked at our entering class credentials for August of 2015, FSU had a higher median LSAT by one point than we did, and they had a higher median undergraduate GPA than UF did. And I'm like, whoa, so we, you know, we're not clearly number one if FSU is attracting better students than we are. So you know, the outreach to applicants was a a huge part of the initial strategy because we needed more people to apply to UF so we could um, be more selective in who um, we admitted. In 2015, our acceptance rate was 62%. And that's not good. Um, A high acceptance rate is not good for for, um, a law school. So we expanded the applicant pool so we could get that acceptance rate down. In one year, we got it down to 30%. And we also were able to increase our median LSAT by three points and um, increase our median GPA by um, a tenth from 3.5 to 3.6. And I thought it was very important to do that early on to get some momentum um, going forward and put some distance between us and FSU (laughs) and then start competing with other top law schools. And, And for many alums, the fact that we were ranked below Georgia was disturbing. Um, the fact that we were ranked below Alabama <laughs> was disturbing. And so I wanted us to catch up with those schools. And now we've ultimately surpassed. Them. I don't know how to ask this, but I know that one of the problems that you were trying to tackle was to get more people of color to apply. Um, but if mm-hmm. if I'm uh, have high credentials, a high LSAT and uh, you know, do I want to come to University of Florida when I could go somewhere that may be more friendly toward minorities? How did you mm-hmm. tackle that issue? Right. Because you can't right. just have them apply. You want them to come and stay and do well, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, um, you know, and, and UF law has a history of, of uh, you know, excluding particularly um, African-American students until 1958. And that's something, you know, we have to acknowledge, but also um, seek to um, overcome um, that history. So 
one thing we did was make sure that all of our student affinity groups felt supported, our Black Law Students Association, our, our Latin Law Students Association, our Asian American Law Students Association, and then energize them to help us recruit the next generation of students. Um, so that was our early strategy, and it was quite successful. Um, we also um, eventually hired an assistant dean for inclusion because it's, you know, it's not just getting people here, but once they are here, that they feel like they belong. Um, and, and we want all students to feel like they belong. You know, that's one of the real strengths of, of UF Law is the warmth and community that we have. But if you're not intentional about it, some people can feel left We've out. talked about the rival law school in the state. And I just interviewed uh, Dean O'Connor, and we talked about that they had provided wellness. I mean, wellness is is a big priority for them. Uh, they provide petting zoos for their students. What what does UF do to ensure the the wellness of their students? Right, right. Well, well, we've you know over the last four or five years have had. Um, an increased focus on mental health and mental health programming. I know the Florida Bar has also focused on that. So um, it's been wonderful to be able to work with them on that. But then obviously with COVID, mental health issues um, took on a whole new flavor. You know, many of our students were struggling and their families were struggling. And um, we were eventually able to hire a full-time mental health counselor who devotes all of her time to the students at the law school, um, can do one-on-one -on -one sessions, can refer um, people to other providers, and can do group-based sessions. Um, and then, of course, you know, around exams, we, we try to, you know, provide some study breaks. We, we don't have a petting zoo like FSU. They're one-upping us on that. <laughs> but, but we have had dogs come, um, you know, to have, you know, some, some uh, canine support. Uh, um, and um, that part has been great. Um, and, and, you know, we're just continually trying new things to make sure, you know, students can take care of their mental health, even as they're pushing themselves in the classroom. Law school remains a very rigorous experience. It will always be a rigorous experience, but we want students to have a resource um, when they're struggling. As you said, it, would, it will always be rigorous. You've been now teaching or in uh, the administration of of teaching new lawyers for now twenty years. What has changed in academia, and then what has changed about the students themselves? And maybe we can start with the students. Have you seen it yeah, a change? Yes, um, particularly after you know the financial crisis of two thousand eight. 2009. At first, um, that crisis led a lot of people to apply to law school because they didn't know what else to do. It was hard to get other jobs right out of college. But then um, those students who you know, went to law school in 2008, 2009, um, 2010 had a real trouble getting jobs when they graduated. And that then changed um, the nature of how people applied to law school starting, I would say, in 2011. Many fewer people applied to law school because there wasn't the assurance of a well-paying job after graduation. 
And I think that means that now the students who go to law school are not just going to law school by default or because they can't get another job. Instead, um, they're either really passionate about a cause that they think law can help them further, or um, they have a much better understanding of what lawyers do on a day-to-day basis and want to do that, even if um, it won't lead to a super high paying job after graduation. So, so our students have more purpose now, I would say. They have more direction. Um, they're very focused on employment outcomes, as they should be. But that means we have to do a better job of, of connecting students with employers. Um, we've done a lot more outreach to employers Um over the last five years, um, you know, encouraging them to interview our students. And now that focus is nationwide. It's not just uh, Florida-based employers, but we're reaching out to employers all across the nation, um, asking them if, they're, if they want to meet our amazing students. Well, I know that UF has a program that was not there when, when I was there, but that you can do a semester in a big city. So tell us a little yes. bit about that. I, I don't know if it's called a semester right. abroad, but it's a semester outside of Florida. <laughs> well, it's a semester in practice. A semester in practice. And, and the key is, is that it's an intensive externship for that semester where you're actually, you know, engaging in legal work under the supervision of, of both a, a lawyer at the site and then a faculty member here at UF. Um, and it can be anywhere in um, the country, including in Florida. So we've had a lot of people do it in Miami or Tampa, Orlando, but then we've also had students go to Washington, D.C., New York, Chicago, Denver, you name it, we've had students go. And um, it's its a wonderful opportunity to explore a new legal market, um, but also to get those hands-on skills so you're not quite so shocked um, when, you, when you, you're, you've graduated from law school and, and starting your first job. And how do you get the employers or the, the people to, to accept the interns or externs? Right. Well, first of all, as you know, the Gator Law Nation is very enthusiastic. So we have uh, many alums who who are begging us for um, students to to work with them in semesters and practice. So that's one way we get some great um, placements. And you, you know, we have alums in all fifty states and sixty countries. So, so the Gator Law Nation is worldwide and, and very diverse. But in addition, we have students who seek out particular placements and then our Office of Career and Professional Development, you know, vets them, makes sure that they would provide the appropriate experience. Um, so so it's, it's a mix of students finding placements and, and our team advertising placements to the students. Well, we talked about a little bit about the wellness aspect of teaching law students. What is UF Law School doing to teach professionalism? to, you know, the new, new attorneys uh, or soon to be new attorneys. Right. Well, so, you know, when you were in law school, I'm sure um, the job placement office was called something like Office of Career Services. We now call it the Office of Career and Professional Development to highlight that, that um, you're not just getting a job 
you're entering a profession and there are crucial um, professionalism skills that you need to develop in law school to succeed in the workplace. So our first semester of law school, we have an introduction to lawyering class. It's required of all students that um, gives an introduction to what it means to join a profession. And some of it is about ethics, but a lot of it is also about networking, about how to present yourself during an interview, how to build a reputation of trust. Um, so, it, so it starts from day one of law school. Um, then we have programming throughout the second and third year. Of course, there's the required professional responsibility class as well. And then we rely on our alumni network as well to um, mentor students, um, to participate in networking events. We have practice interview programs. And um, so it's it's a real multi-layered approach to professional development. Well, I just have a couple more questions for you. I know that you talked about gardening. What else do you do for your own wellness? And uh, <laughs> I know you're you're, you're very well, busy as the dean, raising money and right. hiring and putting out fires. But what do you do on your free time? Right. Well, so I I, I try to get exercise. And that's the hardest part for me. Um, but um, that's something I, I realize I need to make a priority and have been more successful with that. I also love um, the New York Times crossword puzzle. And and they, the New York Times also now has a spelling. I bee. love the spelling so, bee. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. I will say I now like the spelling bee more than um, the crossword puzzle. And so my partner and I do the spelling bee, you know, almost every morning and, and we now eschew the four letter words and we now decide we can only do five letter and above. <laughs> Have you ever gotten queen bee status? We did when we first started, but now since we don't do the four letter words, you can't get queen oh, bee status. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I, I got it twice, but both I was at home during COVID and I think I just did it all day long. So... <laughs> And this is my last question for you. If you had one piece of advice to a law school graduate or a new attorney, what would it be? To be curious and to be bold. You know, don't hold yourself back because you don't know what's there or you think you can't do it. Instead, you know, ask yourself what you're interested in doing, research it, see what's possible, and then take the leap. Thank goodness I had someone pushing me. Um, at various points in time, because I wasn't going to take that leap without the push. And so part of what I try to do as dean is to help students um, take that chance on their own, to, to be curious, to be bold, move forward. If, someone does, if something doesn't work out, that's okay. You can try something new. You know, so some people call that falling fast and forward. Um, but, um, you know, staying curious and, and taking chances, I, I think, is, is key to not just success in the legal profession, but a happy and fulfilling. Well, life. thank you very much, Dean Rosenberry, for, for joining us today. Take care. Thank you so much, Judge. I want to thank the sound engineer, Clay Shaw, for making us sound great. And Katie Young and Rebecca Bandy from the Latimer Center of Professionalism for keeping us on the air. Thanks again for listening and stay safe.